What's up, fam? This is Jay, letting you know that Push Black has a new podcast called State of Criminal Justice. Every week, State of Criminal Justice digs into the most important events happening right now in the legal system. Listen, the future of our community depends on us understanding how injustice systematically operates in this country. State of Criminal Justice is here to ensure you're always up to date on how institutional racism is impacting Black people nationwide. State of Criminal Justice is produced by Push Black. You can catch it on our Push Black YouTube channel, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Thanks for the support. Peace. Harriet Tubman, Bradley Lomax, Joyce Ardell Jackson, Denmark Vesey. These are only a handful of black activists you may know who rebelled, demanded justice, fought for freedom, and played unquestionably significant roles in the continued journey towards liberation. What you might not know, however, is that these and many more activists were disabled. I'm Jay from Push Black, and you're listening to Black History Year. So today, disabled black folks represent nearly half of us who are killed or brutalized by police. And their stories and their struggles are often overlooked when we talk about liberation. So whether it's a lack of awareness or perhaps bias, our guest today will shed light on this group that's often made invisible, even within the black community. As a disability rights activist and advocate, Anita Cameron has dedicated almost 40 years to community organizing and making sure that folks with disabilities have equitable rights in society. For protesting and civil disobedience, Anita has been arrested over a hundred times fighting this fight. She's also the director of Minority Outreach at Not Dead Yet, a national disability rights organization that fights against physician-assisted suicide and the euthanasia of people with disabilities. Whether these disabilities be related to physical or mental health, many of these challenges go ignored and it needs to be addressed. So today we'll chat with Anita. Stay tuned. Being enslaved to becoming a renowned abolitionist, the history of Harriet Tubman you'll find in classroom textbooks reads like a legend. It portrays Tubman as a superheroine, an underdog who beat the odds and freed enslaved people from bondage. That's the sanitized version. And of course, these history books forget the most important part of Harriet Tubman's story, her humanity, her complexities, and her disabilities too. She was only 12 when it happened. A still enslaved Harriet watched in horror as a white overseer viciously reeled back 
and took aim at an enslaved person on the run, a person who would receive a brutal punishment for daring to seek freedom. The overseer threw a weight heavy enough to break bone. When Harriet stepped between him and the target of his malice, she learned the weight could definitely break bone because it cracked her skull. Bloodied and coming in and out of consciousness, the overseer's violence gave the young Harriet a traumatic brain injury, leaving her disabled with seizures, narcolepsy, and much more harm. She was even deemed disposable. As an enslaved Black woman, her humanity had already been stripped. But as an enslaved Black and disabled woman, her humanity was buried. The past now bleeds into the present as this legacy of devaluing disabled Black people continues. Ariel Harrison, Sandra Bland, Freddie Gray, and many other Black disabled people are brutalized and murdered by police by the day, stripped of dignity and human decency. But there are actions able-bodied folks can take right here and right now to make sure Black disabled people are visible and valued. What does Black liberation look like to you? So Black liberation, it's got to include all of us. Because unfortunately, as a Black disabled lesbian, I have found much um, ableism in our communities. It's almost like you have to choose. What do you want to be? Do you want to be Black? Do you want to be disabled? Do you want to be LGBTQ? It's like I can't separate any of that from my Blackness. And so liberation has to include all of us. It has to be equitable. And all of us have to have a say and what our liberation is going to look like. Absolutely. Can you define for us, what is ableism? Ableism is when you have negative thoughts about disability, when you presume incompetence for people with disabilities, when you erase our existence, when you say things like, for instance, a lot of us deal with depression. And when you say something like, oh, you just pray that away. That's just the devil. You pray that away. You know, you, you get over it. You know, that's, that's ableism. When, you know, I tell you, for instance, that I need a specific accommodation. If I tell you, for instance, on this platform, hey, the chats don't work for me, and you keep putting stuff into the chats that I can't see and that I can't interact with, that's a form of ableism. So there's unfortunately many ways to be ableist and to say ableist things, you know, when you discount someone's, you know, um, someone's disability, you know, I'll give you an example. I was going for the train to travel out of town and I asked the conductor, which way do I go to get on the train left or right? And he said, you 
come towards me. And I'm like, I don't really know what you are. And he's like, but you look dead at me. And I'm like, that doesn't mean I saw you. I'm looking at the sound of your voice. So when someone explains to you, you know, I have this particular disability and you respond with, you don't look disabled. Or if I tell people I'm autistic and I am autistic and you say, oh, we're all a little bit autistic. You know, uh, we all we all have something wrong with us. That's just total ableism. You know, if you say that was stupid or that was idiotic, you know, um, those are ableist terms. They're the old terms, you know, of uh, intellectual abilities, you know, and the and, and the R word and all of that. So, you know, you typically don't use those. And if someone with a disability is telling you, hey, the words and the phrases that you're using are ableist, and you say, oh, whatever, then that in itself is being ableist. Going back to your description of Black liberation and what that should entail, uh, and now that we've set a foundation for an idea of what ableism is, in what ways do you work towards this future vision of Black liberation? In my day job, if you will, I am director of minority outreach for an organization called Not Dead Yet. And Not Dead Yet is a national grassroots disability organization that fights against and speaks out against euthanasia of disabled folks. We work against these doctor-assisted suicide bills coming out in the states because what will in various states because what happens is is that disabled people and particularly disabled elders sick people who are BIPOC black indigenous people of color are at particular risk and in my case you know I concentrate a lot on me being black you know, I concentrate a lot on how this will affect Black people. And with the racial disparities in healthcare and how that will make it, unfortunately, more likely that Black disabled will be subject to euthanasia practices, eugenics practices, what we call uh, utility laws in medicine, med- medical rationing, you know, as it is, we Black people get inferior health care in comparison to whites. And so in my job, I really work to bring awareness of how racism plays a part in disability discrimination in healthcare. As, you know, a disability activist, you know, I try to make sure that things that we do our work in an intersectional way because like in the disability community, I mean, unfortunately, the face of disability is white, the face of disability community and activism and all that is white. And so as a disability justice activist, I try to bring awareness of the fact that black people especially were involved in disability history and disability rights history. And so what I have focused on doing is lifting up 
our stories, a lot of people don't realize that as we were fighting for Section 504 to become law, which is part of the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, um, when those folks took over the offices in California, a lot of people didn't realize that the Black Panthers not only fed those folks, because when people hear, do hear, they hear, oh, the Black Panthers fed them. Yes, that is true. The Black Panthers fed those activists, but the Black Panthers participated. There were disabled Panthers that participated in that action, Brad Lomax being one of them. And so what a lot of people don't realize is, is that when those meetings happen in Washington, D.C. with the Health, Education and Welfare, um, Joseph Califano's office, that there were Black Panthers involved in that meeting, that Brad Lomax was one of the people who went to the meetings in Washington, D.C. and helped to secure this. When we were fighting for the Americans with Disabilities Act, the passage of that um, in 1990, a lot of people don't realize that there were many, many Black folks involved in that. So, I mean, from your perspective, what are the root causes of, you know, where society is on this issue of disability justice? Society has this attitude of better dead than disabled. I'd rather be dead than be you. And in my job fighting against doctor-assisted suicide, a lot of times that people want it. And the proponents of this would say that it was pain or the fear of pain, bad deaths. They'd seen people, family members die horrible deaths. Unfortunately, the data that exists tells us that the five main reasons that people ask for assisted suicide have to do with disability-related stuff, you know, a loss of dignity, the loss of autonomy, the loss of the ability to do things that you used to do before that you love, the feelings of being a burden, whether financial, emotional, physical, and also the inability to control bodily things. And I've heard not only ordinary people, you know, doctors and whatnot who say, if I develop a terminal condition or a chronic illness and I, you know, start needing help to um, toilet myself and all that, I want to die. And so it's also believed that disabled people don't have a good life. So that's factors into that. In fact, there was a Harvard study done uh, last year. Over 700 doctors were surveyed around the country. 84% of those doctors felt that disabled people had a worse quality of life than non-disabled. Less than 60% said that they would welcome a disabled person into their practice. 79% of those doctors felt uncomfortable working with disabled people. Because disabled people were seen as problems, broken things to be fixed, were not really seen as human, if you will. And a lot of doctors, they're into fixing things. They want to make things better. And if they can't fix you or cure you, 
then they have an issue with you. And unfortunately, that's the situation that we disabled people face. And then you have this attitude almost like, oh, y'all get everything and we don't. We have to fight for everything. We have to fight for our wheelchairs, for our equipment so that we can get out and about. We have to fight to remain in the community. They have something called the institutional bias where the only right a disabled person have is to be taken care of in a nursing home or another other institutions. And these institutions, even in times of financial crisis, they get monies, they have the infrastructure and all. Whereas it's far cheaper to care for someone in their own home Yet those programs are optional. And so if your state is going through budgetary crisis, the first programs that go are the optional programs, which usually means programs that help people with disabilities remain independent. And so often we're, you know, in a situation where we are relegated or placed into institutional settings. Even though in 1999, on June 22nd, 1999, The Supreme Court put out the Olmstead decision, which says that unnecessary institutionalization is discrimination under the Americans with Disabilities Act. So to place somebody with a disability into institution just because you don't think we should be in a community or supposedly your state doesn't have the money or whatever, that that is discrimination. It is illegal. And we should have the right to be in the community and all. However, just like with the Americans with Disabilities Act and a lot of legislation that affects people with disabilities, they are unfunded mandates that usually our community have to be the watchdogs over. And so that's just even some of you know, kind of what ableism is, how our community is affected. And, you know, I'm not sure why it is in our community, in the Black community, there's so much ableism. I mean, it's we disabled often get left out of things. And I remember when I was trying to work with other movements involving Blacks and disabled, when we would approach, we were being told that, no, you're making this about you. No, you know, you're taking it off of Black people and making it about disabled. And it's like, so wait a minute, Black disabled people don't exist? Are we not a part of our communities? So like, for instance, police brutality against Black folks. A lot of people don't realize that. 30 to 50% of those people who either murder or brutalized by the police are disabled. We're talking Black folks alone. 30 to 50% of the people murdered or brutalized by police, Black people, are disabled. Oftentimes, it's non-apparent disabilities like mental health disabilities or autism or other non-apparent disabilities, diabetes, asthma, whatever. But sometimes people, you know, using mobility devices or prosthetics are also brutalized and murdered by police. We disabled 
we're part of our Black community. Why aren't we accepted? We really need to be accepted. And it shouldn't be a matter of us always, the onus on us always being, having to reach out, reach out, reach out. We need to be reached out to, you know, because if we're reaching out and reaching out, then that's sending a message to us that we're not welcome, that disabled people, disabled Black folks aren't welcome in the Black community and that we don't deserve to be a part of the Black community. And we have things to offer. We have gifts to offer. We have wisdom to offer. You're talking about liberation for Black people. Is there an asterisk that says, but only for able-bodied, non-disabled, only for straight people, heterosexuals, only for Christians, only for those Black people that look and act respectable and whatnot. So we shouldn't have to beg to be a part of the Black community. So in what ways have you seen it modeled when Black folks with disabilities are brought into the conversation or the actions around liberation? I haven't seen it yet in the Black community overall. I see it in Black disability organizations. So from what I've seen, it's been Black disabled folks coming together, usually Black women or Black non-binary, you know, and no disrespect to the Black disabled men out here, you know, making it work. But it seems to me that a lot of the Black liberation work in the disability community is being done by women and non-binary. And, you know, that's neither good nor bad. It simply is. And I think, you know, it'll, it'll take us women, you know, to reach out to and embrace you know, all of us, you definitely got to be in on the ground floor. In the disability community, we say nothing about us without us, which means that, you know, you can't talk about doing something for us. We have to be at that table and we have to be the ones to tell the community at large, this is what we want. This is what is good, you know, for us. This is what liberation for us looks like. So many times we are deemed to be incompetent, that we don't know what we're talking about, that we don't know what we want, that we don't know ourselves, our bodies, our communities. And that's just not true. And we really need to be listened to and not gaslit or erased or passed over. I think in our community, Black liberation and the disability community is definitely, it's the Black disabled and non-binary folks who are kind of leading that. So for folks who are listening now that may not be aware of these challenges, maybe getting this information for the first time, but want to be supportive and inclusive of those members of our community who have disabilities, what type of support is needed? How can folks be thinking about this? 
don't ever let us be an afterthought because we just keep seeing how we're an afterthought, how nobody thought about us until we said something or we showed up. Normalize, including disabled people and whatever plans that you're doing. Normalize having disabled friends. Talk to disabled folks. Now, that doesn't mean that you see a disabled person on the street and you start asking them questions that you would not ask any other stranger, like about how does your junk work or what do you, you know, because we do get asked that, you know, we're not talking about being inappropriate with us. You know, we're talking about if you're going to have a meeting at a place, make sure that the place you're meeting at doesn't have steps. So that if somebody, you know, who's using a wheelchair wants to come, that they can come. If you have a large public event going on, you know, that you expecting, you know, a uh, hundred people, you know, or more, whatever, put it out there. Make sure that you're holding your place because this is the law of you. Hold things in a public place that have to be accessible so that everybody could get in. Make sure that you have a way to have ASL interpreters or a cart situation where you have something on the screen that's putting the words so that people can read it if they have a hard time, you know, hearing. In every state, practically almost every city, there is what they call centers for independent living. What they are is they are non-residential places. They're places that you go if you're a person with disabilities to get help, to get advocacy, to get information on benefits or whatever. And these places are ran by people with disabilities and their boards are over 51% of people with disabilities. And you come there, for instance, someone came to the cell that I was working at called Center for Disability Rights. And they said, we got a bunch of blind people at this stop. And there is no way that a blind person can safely cross the street. Can you um, see about getting a light, a traffic light that talks? And we said, okay. And I actually went to the county and we discussed that. And I told the situation. And about a couple of weeks later, um, they installed a talking traffic stop at the intersection where our seal was so that blind folks, and that included me, could safely get, you know, across the street, catch the bus and all of that. So those kinds of things, always be thinking about how can you welcome someone with a disability? How do I make this accessible for disabled people? And don't be afraid to use the word disabled. It's not a cuss word. It's not a negative word. Certainly more prefer that than differently able, handy, capable, all these silly little euphemisms. Disabled, say the word, that's okay. So what does the world look like for us if we don't approach this issue as a community in a different way? If we don't challenge you know, any ableism that we may practice as a community, what are we missing out on on this road towards liberation? If you're leaving out disabled people, you're really not working for liberation to fight for us and include us in liberatory 
practices and in that, that liberatory fight because our community will miss out. We will be all the worst if we don't include the disabled folks in our fight for equity, for rights, for justice. When you leave us out, you you we're just as a community not complete. We are totally incomplete. And so that means that all of us disabled, no matter what our disabilities are, we must be valued. You know, we have value whether we have intellectual disabilities, mental health disabilities, physical disabilities, uh, mobility disabilities, processing disabilities. So whether you, you know, use a wheelchair because you were a veteran or you were born with a disability or you're autistic or you have severe intellectual disabilities or you're deaf or you're blind, you know, or you have chronic conditions and all, you know, we are all valuable to our community. All right, Anita Cameron, I appreciate you joining us on Black History Year. I know I've learned a lot, uh, gained some helpful insights. I appreciate you uh, sharing with our community. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really honored and I really appreciate it. And just like that, we're at the end of this episode of Black History Year. This podcast is produced by Push Black the nation's largest nonprofit black media company. At Push Black, we agree with Marcus Garvey when he said, a people without knowledge of their past, history, origin, and culture is like a tree without roots. And I'm guessing you probably feel that's important too. I mean, here you are at the end of a podcast about black history. You matter. Your choice to be here matters. It lets us know that you value this work. Push Black exists because we saw we had to take matters into our own hands. And you make Push Black happen with your contributions at blackhistoryyear.com. Most people give about five or 10 bucks a month, but everything makes a difference. Thanks for supporting the work. The Black History Year production team includes Tarek Alani, Leslie Taylor Grover, Brooke Brown, Siobhan Chapman, Albany Jones, Brianna Lambach, Garciella Melotesi, Zane Murdoch, Tasha Taylor, and Darren Wallace. Producing the podcast, we have Sydney Smith and Sasha Kai Parker, who also edits the show. And Black History Year's executive producer is Julian Walker. And I'm Jay from Push Black. Peace.